Dear Father, what a joy. Thank you, God, for bringing us home, bringing us together, but more importantly, bringing us together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And to recognize that we're brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ, not for some sort of selfish end, but to drop self. And having finally done that with the severity of what it really takes to drop self, we are unshackled to serve you and make the great difference that you so desire. I pray that we'll do nothing less. Help us to be astounded by Jesus as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, as we, as we look at this passage, it, it really speaks to my heart. Because when I was a little boy, my brother and I used to, let's just say, dread a lot of the time that we had with our Lithuanian culture. My, my whole mom's side of the family, they were all Lithuanian. They ate food that I can't even describe to you because of the fear of what would happen even to you, even at this moment. Just describing the food to you. Well, we, we'd endure all of this. But there was one little thing that we really did love and look forward to. And it was when my grandmother would begin to spin the stories of what it was like as they were able to escape Lithuania during World War II as the... Uh, Nazis had, had taken over the country, and then even more ominously, when the Russian tanks rolled on up and into Lithuania to overrun that nation. And it was during that time that she, uh, who's, who's 97, by the way, and, and still kicking, uh, but, but, but as she would tell us these stories, you know, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, uh, you know, we would sit enthralled at her knee, wanting to hear because... She would tell us of every one of her seven brothers, and she'd go through the different brothers. But the two brothers that we look forward to hearing about the most, one was Victoras, because he was a circus performer, and he had wild stories, by the way. He could do a flip in the air. But, but never mind that. It has nothing to do with my sermon, except the joyful memory that it just elicited in me that I now spill over to you. But the other two, however, were Pranus and Felixis, and especially Felixis. Because Felixis in Lithuania had a great reputation. And there were actually three monuments to him built in Lithuania to his, his reputation. Because Felixis was the leader of the most famous partisan group in Lithuania. Now, for those of you who are younger, you don't know what partisans were. But when, when we were younger, the partisans were famous. Partisans were all throughout Europe during during World War II, and they were basically the revolutionaries. They were the guerrilla force that were trying to kind of either, you know, free a country from either Nazi fascism oppression or from the, the communist plague that was, was coming over Eastern Europe at that time. And so this was the communist plague coming into Lithuania, and Pranus and Felixis both rose up to be able to be part of, not only be part of, but to lead the Taurus partisan group. And, and so they did. And as a matter of fact, just uh, a little while ago, uh, last month, we were at a, a monument in Lithuania. And I think it's coming up here. Uh, here you can see Caleb and Lindsay. And th this is in a, a town near Klaipeda, Lithuania. And it's a large monument made to many of the leaders of the Taurus uh, revolutionary group here. And in, in particular... Uh, on this monument were our relatives. And, as a matter of fact, the monument, I think, was was uh, partly organized for them. But but right here it says Felixis Gingis and Pranus Gingis. 
And also, Felix is genius on another monument, which is made just to him in, in another part of Lithuania. In that monument, it, it says at the bottom, when it, when it talks about his name, it says Tigras. Why, why that? Because that means the tiger. And I've mentioned him a couple of years back, but uh, it goes with this text. So I'd like you to kind of indulge me for a moment. But we would, we would hear about the tiger. And, and when the Russian tanks came in, many were shipped off to, to Siberia of our family and of, of the entire population. And rather than just kind of roll over to welcome the Russian tanks with passivity, they decided to take to arms. And so they went to the woods, organized a militia, and decided that they were going to stand their ground against the Russians. And when that got too uh, overwhelming because of their artillery, then they conducted some sort of a, a guerrilla warfare where they would disrupt supply lines or be able to disrupt whatever it was that they were trying to do in the military uh, among the Russians as much as possible. And so they fought. But this is a cold place by the Lith Lithuania. I mean, it's, it's close to the, uh, you know, just below Finland, cold, cold. And, but they lived in the woods for five years from 1945 until 1950, successfully disturbing the, the, the Russian militia while they were there. And they were also, for the Lithuanians, they were the great hope, the great hope of, of all of these Lithuanians, that perhaps with more and more being able to, to rise up and mount a great resistance. And in fact, of, of all the Soviet nations, the biggest kind of um, spur under their, under their uh, saddle were the Lithuanians. They were, they were vehement, vehemently revolutionary against the, the Russian forces that were there. As a matter of fact, as we were kids, as we would hear these stories, we would often hear them at what we would celebrate year after year in March, Lithuanian Independence Day. Now, I'm a kid, and Lithuania is not independent. It's part of the Soviet Union. And I'm like, why is it? Because, you know, I know on July 4th, we celebrate our independence here in America, and you know what? It rings a bit more full than this Independence Day does. So check me if I'm wrong here, Grandma, but, but why is it that we're celebrating this independence when we are a conquered nation? But they wouldn't even accept it. Like, we, not for long. Not for long. You know what I mean? They really insisted, like, this is going to happen. So kind of, I, I grew up with, with all of this, but, but I love to hear the stories, but in particular about the stories of, of the great successes of the, of the partisans led by Tigris. And, but ultimately, though, in 1950, through a, a little bit of intelligence, the Russians were able to flush the tiger out of the woods. And, and, and they did. And when they did, they shot him. They didn't just shoot him, though. Then they stripped him, brought him to the town circle of Mariupoli, hitched his uh, ankles up to a cart, and forced the entire town at the point of bayonets to come out and watch around the town square of Mariupoli, which was a, a cobblestones town square. And as his naked body was then drugged in front of all of them, it was basically a, a huge symbol to all of the Lithuanians who were so revolutionary in their spirit. This will happen to you. That is basically the, the message that the Russians were sending. This will happen to you. You want to rise up? You want to be the big man? You want to be the revolutionary? You want to fight for freedom? Don't even think about it. You even think about it, this will happen to you. And even my great-grandma, my grandmother's mother, this is the mother of the tiger, uh, who, who I was able to visit with in 1983 when I was there. Uh, even she, as she told me the story, had to stand there stoically, not making any emotional response at all for fear that if she did, they would view her as a sympathizer and off she would go to, to uh, Siberia on the trains immediately. And so there they were, 
with this exercise by the Russians to basically rob their hearts, melt their hearts from the cause of freedom. And it is not very different, really, as I hear this story, from, from what it is that the world really tries to do to us. And, it, and it's because of that, that in this passage in Luke 9, Jesus 1 unveils the great identity of himself as, you know what, you've been an oppressed nation. For hundreds of years now, you've endured the yoke of Roman oppression. And we don't understand that. We grew up American, so that's, it's not something that we appreciate. I don't really appreciate it fully either, but I think I appreciate it a little bit more than most because so much of my life was all about Lithuania and so much of it was one day hoping to toss off the yoke of Soviet oppression that, that had been there. I think especially from 1983 on when I was really able to visit and really see how oppressive that yoke is. And so Jesus in uh, verse 18 of Luke 9 uh, will pick up there. Once when Jesus was praying in a private place and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Same, same word as the Christ. Well, the cat's out of the bag. It is, it is suddenly been revealed that Jesus is the Christ. This is, this, you know, to us, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. We hear the word over and over again. And by its repetition, we become dulled to the intensity of that identification. But to a Jew living with hundreds of years of Roman oppression, what was Jesus if he's the Christ? The Christ is the deliverer. The Christ is their brave heart figure. The one who is going to finally come and rally men's hearts and cause them to rally together and be able to throw off this yoke of Roman oppression as the one that they encountered as, as we read the story. And so as they're, as they're gathered there, they are now coming to the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. This is a big deal because messianic fever had gripped all of Israel even from before the time of Jesus' birth. And any hint of the potentiality of the Messiah finally arriving on the scene in Israel was met with a fever pitch among the people. Matter of fact, John's gospel begins with different messengers being sent to John the Baptist. J John the Apostle's gospel, as he spoke of John the Baptist, there's already this idea of, could you be the Messiah? Could you be the Messiah? And many are perhaps identified as the Messiah only to say, no, we are not. And for Jesus... To let the cat out of the bag. This is the resolution of all the tension of the first nine chapters of the book of Luke. All throughout the book of Luke, as Jesus does miracle, is able to bring about righteousness, to be able to give hope for, for a lost nation. All throughout, there is tension rising. Could this be the one? The one for whom we've been waiting, for whom we've been praying. Could this be the one that Isaiah 35 speaks about? That the scriptures promise will finally come. And all of these dark days will have in the end a bright and shining end to them. This is a hope that was mind-blowing to them. And again, as a Lithuanian-American growing up, it was one that I heard about all the time. 
And I, again, I didn't appreciate because I didn't grow up in Lithuania. But when I saw in, in their faces as they would rate each news report, everything that we did, it was, it was astounding. When I was um, nine years old, I uh, went to New York City to, to do this big protest uh, on New York City for a Russian dissident. His name was Simis Kudirka, who had kind of uh, jumped from a Russian ship over to an American ship. And he was looking to be able to be an American citizen. And uh, he, he, he at first was sent back, then brought back. But I remember going to this rally. And I'm a little kid and I'm holding up this big sign that says, Free Simis. And, and, but I'm, I'm in this rally. And, and I mean, these people were like foaming at the mouth as, as I'm there. And I'm a little kid. And it was freezing, by the way, too. I remember that, too. And I was wearing like a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man suit. And by the way... They took a picture of me holding this sign. It was on the cover of the New York Daily News back in whatever year that was, in the 70s. But uh, it's a little self-aggrandizement. Sorry about that. You know, I'll work on that for sure. But, but, but anyway, but, but I do remember being part of the thing. Wow, these people are losing their minds over this like fisherman who jumped from one ship to another. But it just shows kind of this, this freedom fever that you have when you are really not a free people. And, and this is, again, again, that little bit of appreciation helps me to understand what's going on here in the text. When it could this be? And, oh my goodness, Jesus has done it. The Kind of the, the, the resolution of all the tension saying, I'm the deliverer. I'm the hero who's going to rise up. I'm the one who's going to rally. But they had in mind a very clear preconception of, of what the uh, Messiah was to be. And, and their preconception... Was, was really a bit different than what ours would be. Theirs is more like a, oh, I mean, think, think of all the kind of the, the famous rallying messiahs of film. I mean, think of uh, Aragon, right? Before the Black Gates. Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails. We forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of woes and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear in this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. And everybody's like, ah! I don't care if there are orcs coming. And they're freaky. Because of that speech, I'm going to take them down. Not me. If an orc is coming, I don't care what he just said. But we, we love those brave heart moments in, in our movies. What is about to come here in the Gospels is the brave heart moment. If we just take a minute to study the depth of what it is that Jesus said. But before that brave heart moment comes, Jesus has to reframe or cause his guys to reconsider what it means to be the deliverer of the Christ. So reconsidering the Christ. And here's what Jesus goes on to say. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, if you're sitting here with Jesus and you just heard that he is the invincible, undefeatable warrior that's coming to cast off all oppression. And now he's saying to you, oh, yeah, by the way, our very own leaders the people that have been pointing towards the Messiah, the people who have been teaching you about me, they are actually going to take me and they are going to humiliate me 
They're going to strip me of all dignity, and then they're going to kill me on a cross. So if you hear that, it uh, does not compute, does not fit with my preconception of the warrior king that's coming our way. And, and so, of course, Peter is like, um, that, 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 that's not really working with, with what I thought here. And so for this passage, first, we need to reconsider the Christ. And for us, we've reconsidered the Christ. I mean, we've got thousands of years now of being able to have a clear view of Jesus. They did not. It was coming to clear to them at that moment. Yes, this guy was mighty and incredible and invincible and loving and giving and selfless and powerful, but there's no way he's going to have failure along the way. But in order for him to be able to bring freedom to all of us, he was going to have to endure all our failure, all our shame. And in the midst of all of that, there's no greater shame than being cursed on a tree. To be able to fail to that degree. And so for him to really bring freedom, well, it's going to cost him more than any of us could have recognized. Not just some blood in a battle, but to cost him dignity. To cost him his very precious righteousness as he allows all of that to be sullied by the depth of my nasty sinfulness. And, and, and so he does and so he has. And so he will. But this is, this is our Christ. But do we kind of sit as my Lithuanian relatives did saying, Oh, if only I could be free. If only I could be free from the oppression of self and Satan and sin and the flesh and this world. I don't think we yearn for it. The same way that I've seen many people yearn for their freedom at a different level. But this freedom is so much more precious and beautiful and valuable. It ought to be something that we likewise, like, oh, when the day comes, when I can have a deliverer, oh, how sweet that will be. What could be greater than to have a deliverer that is, is not of my own making, but a deliverer come and be able to take me from this frustrating mess of a treadmill of frustration that I am on and be able to deliver me. And so the Messiah does exactly that. But after having said this, we, we, we know that... Um, that Peter takes him aside at this point and begins to rebuke him. The other, the other Gospels speak of that. Why? Because it just didn't fit with his view. But there's one more thing, though, that happens in this passage. Jesus then lays out, okay, I'm the Messiah. I'm, I'm going to bring about this revolution and this world change. But, by the way, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to follow the Christ... Well, you need to understand then, if you truly are signed up to be followers, what is really being defined of you? And you can't define this yourself. If you're with me, here is how it is that you're going to have to follow me. And so while my first point is reconsidering the Christ, my second point is recapturing the Christian. Because something has happened along the way in Christianity. We've decided... To redefine what it means to be a Christian. Part of the reason is, is that the word Christian appears in our Bible only three times. And when it appears only three times, you're left to be able to fill in the gaps. And you fill in the gaps with, well, it's a nice guy, nice gal. Goes to church, reads Psalms. Maybe when they're at Starbucks, they look up at you and smile from their Bible. And you say, oh, look at that nice Christian person over there. And that in our mind is like a really good Christian, right? Wow, they're at Starbucks and they're reading the Bible. 
and they smiled at me as I went by. Oh, I feel really good about myself and the whole world right now. I think that's about as intense as it gets for most people, by the way. But it's not up to us to fill in the gaps any way we see fit. Because while the Bible does only mention Christian three times, it mentions disciple about 300 times. 270 be, be exact. And as we know in Acts 11, disciple is equated with Christian. Christian is just another way of saying to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so if we're to really appreciate what this is that we're being called to, that our deliverer has come, and now he's saying, we're going to do this thing, all of us, are you with me? And we're like, yeah. Well, we're not saying yeah to a latte and a psalm. What we're saying yeah to is what he is saying right here when he is calling us to be his disciples, to be his followers. And in verse uh, 21, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone the Son of Man must suffer these things. As a, well, let me jump to 23. Then he said to them all. And many people, because of the broad sweep and the clarity by which he is saying, this applies to you all, that this has been known as the standard of Christianity or the standard of discipleship. It's a passage that's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And here he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is a radical call by Jesus. All right, you want to follow me? You want to be part of this thing? Well then, let me make it clear. Life is not about you. There can be no self flaring at any point. And you're going to have to take up a cross. And you're going to have the attitude of one who takes up the cross every day of your life. And then if any of that is not clear enough, then just imitate me. Follow me, is what he lays out. And, and, and again, it's, it's not this idea of, you know, take up your cross. What does take up your cross mean? I'll get to that in a moment. But before we could even contemplate the radical call, the significance that Jesus lays upon every one of us here of what we get to do with our lives, before we can even consider that, the first thing that he gives as a must is that we got to deny ourselves. And I think on most days now, when I consider my Christianity, that's my big deal. I am such a selfish beast. My goodness. How, I, I just want, I mean, even my Christianity, when my Christianity becomes warped, is because I want it on my own terms. Yeah, I don't want it to be completely lame, because I want it to look somewhat rigorous, but on my own terms. That's the ugliness of it. But not until I can really drop my own agenda, my allegiance, my affections, what, what are my preferences, until I can really drop that, I am going to be disabled from ever really able to live out my Christianity. I had to fight this when I was studying the Bible because my great sin was self, 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 self. 
my self-image, my, my career path, everything was just my, my, what was going to be on my resume, what my business card was. And if any of that was threatened by Jesus, whoa, do I really want to do this Christianity thing? Very, very, very difficult. And, and even now, I, I, can't, I can't really start my day without a deep consideration of how much of myself is being injected back again now that I've become sophisticated and mature in my walk with Jesus. I mean, it, it is so easy for me to justify now, but what is all that justification doing? Getting me back to a, a Christianity that looks more like what I want it to look like rather than what Jesus lays out. Let me put some words up on the board right now. These are all good words, you know, to be consumed in something, to be absorbed, to give congratulation, to, to important, to be interested. Pitying is a, you know, a, a great and laudable thing. Promotion, seeking, to be reliant, to be righteous. All of those are really fantastic concepts or propositions. But all of them are completely stained and destroyed by doing one simple thing to them. It's a nasty expletive of a four-letter word that I am going to put on the screen in front of your precious eyes right now. So brace yourself. There's the filth. Self. Self-consumed. Self-absorbed. Self-congratulation. Self-important. Self-interest. Self-pity. Self-promotion. Self-seeking. Self-reliant. Or even worse, self-righteous. Nothing ruins anything or everything as easily as self. And if we can't get over ourselves, oh, what we got waiting for us is a bag of hurt if we're really trying to pretend to follow Jesus rather than surrender over to, to following Jesus. Self in all of its forms is deadly from being able to keep us from following Jesus because self kills empathy, much less compassion. There's no room for it. When we focus on ourselves, our world contracts. But our problems and our preoccupations loom large and they obscure our view from what it is that Jesus wants us to really be able to see. But when we deny self, focus on others, the world becomes big and the world becomes clear. We increase our capacity for connection, for compassion, for action. We, we increase our capacity for Christianity by doing one thing. Denying self. And if it just sounds simple enough, it's the biggest thing that you can imagine. Because our capacity for self-preservation is off the charts. And we will rationalize, do whatever it is that we can to preserve self and all of its ugly little forms that might be still left in our lives. It's, it's one of the great exercises of my quiet time every morning is to be able to seek and destroy all last remnants of, of self that keep popping up over and over again back into my life only to hamper what it is that I'm meant to do in Jesus Christ. So, but when, when we really can get to this point, now we're able to consider what Jesus means by, okay, now that your life is not about you, not about your own agenda and, and, and ambitions, uh, but, but now, here's the deal. This is what I want of you. I want you, and when he said this, this, this crowd in the first century would have been blown back. I want you to take up your cross. Yes, it's a phrase that we've 
uh, emasculated today uh, because take up your cross. Well, I have I have arthritis. I guess it's just my cross to bear. I didn't sleep much last night. You know, I just flew in from Singapore. Just my cross to bear. And boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> but we, we just throw it out there in that, in that flippant way when it's not at all what it was ever meant to be. And if we're ever to be serious about studying our Bibles, we know that no passage can mean now what it did not mean then. And what did it mean to them? And by the way, we can also spiritualize what it means to take up your cross. Well, I just need to deny my sin so dearly that I put my sin on the cross. Sounds good, but it's not what it meant to them. Because they didn't have Easter at this point in time. All they had was a radical Messiah telling them to follow him. And all they had was their experiences all the time with crosses. And here's one of those experiences that all of them would have been very familiar with. This is a scene depicted by the writings of Josephus, a first century historian, about the town of Sephorus. Sephorus is the commuter town for Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. It's right in between Cana, Nazareth, Capernaum, Bethsaida. All the places that we read about the most, where all these people are in this crowd, they would have known intimately what went down in Sephorus. Because what went down in Sephorus was a revolt, a great Jewish revolt. Partisans, so to speak, rose up to try to cast off the yoke of Roman oppression. Thousands of the best and brightest of those Jewish men rose up in opposition for their freedom. And at first it looked like they were gaining victory, but with some uh, Roman envoys, they were able to get some extra troops. The, the, uh, the, the extra legions surrounded the revolutionaries, the Jewish revolutionaries, put down the revolution with force, killed many of them, but then they decided to do something interesting. They preserved 2,000 of the best and brightest of these young men, the most impressive looking, the ones of the greatest reputation among the Jews. Why did they do that? Because they had a different fate in store for them. They were going to hang them on crosses. And so they did. And Josephus writes that these crosses went up and down the Roman roads where all these people to whom Jesus was speaking would have traveled frequently. And it took most of these people three or four days to die. You can see even here scavenger birds up above. Most died at the hands of scavenger animals or scavenger birds. And the Romans wanted it this way. They didn't want a quick death because these, this was their billboard. These were billboards for the control of Rome. And what were they saying? Well, what I said earlier today, this could happen to you. You want to be the Messiah? You want to be the revolutionary? You want to rise up? You want to be the big man? You want to be the big woman? This will happen to you. And so the Romans were able to keep a vast, sprawling empire under its thumb through use of such a severe message, the cross. And so when people heard Jesus say, take up your cross, they weren't thinking, well, I don't know if I can do this with my arthritis. There was no thought of that. They're thinking, whoa, he's calling us to be revolutionaries. There are only two crimes punishable by a cross, murder or revolution. I don't think he was calling them to be murderers. They had heard enough of what his preaching was. But did they think that he was calling them to be revolutionaries? Yes, they did. And if they were unsure, listen to what Jesus says right after that. You want to save your life? You'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very self? 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. God is, is giving us here the answer to what I think every one of us, at some point in our lives, whether it was at the point where my brother and I were little kids, wondering, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to make a difference in this world? We're enthralled with this example of Tigris, but how do we become Tigris someday? And I always wondered that. And then it kind of got squelched as the years went by. But then, as I encountered Jesus, unfiltered, not traditional Jesus that I knew growing up, but Jesus of the Scriptures, the Christ, and the Christianity that He lays out for me, I had to take a breath. Because suddenly I realized, oh my, I'm getting the answer to my prayer. I can be careful what you pray for, because it might just happen. I'm being given the significance of Christianity. My cause of Christ transcends any Lithuanian Independence Day that was yet to come. This cause of Christ is of greater import, more significant, and more radical, and much more powerful. And guess what? Every one of you, as you wondered as a kid, what, what is my great purpose? It's been given to you. Your great purpose, why you've been put here, why you've come to know Jesus, why God arranged time and space, is so that you, too, would deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. To see Jesus clearly, to be unashamed of Jesus, to be unfettered in your cause of this great revolution, and to make a difference in this world for a world that desperately needs to know Jesus Christ. This is what we've been given. Not, not some half-hearted life. I love what um, Teddy Roosevelt wrote. Uh, De Deb and I used to do a key bridge ministry up in D.C., and and right at the base of the Key Bridge was a little island, and it was a monument to Teddy Roosevelt. And at the base of the monument were these great words about a strenuous life, where he talks about it's, it's, it's not, the, not the comfortable, not the critic, not the guy who just simply observes that makes, that really counts. But this is what he writes. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he falls, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those tall, cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Live your life unashamed. Live your life for a cause. Don't make up the cause. You've already got it. Don't let self get in the way. What we've got in Christ is the reason for being. We have it laid out here. This is his brave heart speech to us. This is his call to you. What will you do? Will you shrink back? Will you head back towards a life of passivity? A life of self where you can justify why you don't actually answer the standard of Christianity? Or will you throw off self? See Jesus clearly. Appreciate the depth of this deliverer who brings us a freedom that cannot be measured. And be part of his solution. Part of his core that decide to really recapture 
Christianity once again. And so as a final practical, I leave you with this. Ask yourself, am I ashamed about Jesus in any way? Is there something about his love for people? Something about his power? Something about his compassion? Something about his insight? Something about his righteousness that causes you to be ashamed? Something about his exclusive call? Something about his forgiveness? Something about his reconciliation? You know what? I think the answer is no. And I think even on your worst day, on my worst day, the answer is like, no, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed about Jesus in any way. Consider that. Consider that carefully every day this week. Is there anything about Jesus that causes me shame? And it does not. And coming to that conclusion, then just recognize what it is to then live unashamed. Unashamed of Jesus, unashamed of his gospel. Every encounter that you have, live unashamed, love unashamed. Start the revolution that Jesus really wants you to start. And it doesn't mean kind of jumping up and bearing arms or ringing a bell and telling people they're going to hell if they don't repent. It's little by little with every encounter that you have, just as Alfred shared earlier, of just connecting to somebody. Stepping out of your comfort, selfish zone. Doing something selfless for the sake of someone else. And being able to, in some small way, start the spark that starts the fire that really does bring about the very will of Jesus Christ. You're part of it. You're nothing less. Amen.